This is the Fun Logic Science Show on Kaboo Double X. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. Good morning and welcome to Fuzzy Logic here on Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM. I'm Eamon Lindsay, your host for this morning, and joining me in the studio, we've got Palavi. Welcome, Palavi. Uh, hi, Eamon. Uh, uh, a very good morning to you and uh, all Fuzzy Logic listeners. And uh, later in the program, uh, of course, we'll listen to an interview with renowned astronomer Professor Ken Freeman. And uh, let's hope you have a good show today. <laughs> Absolutely. And also, our thanks uh, to Pat Mahal and his uh, presentation on Irish Voice uh, just on before. Always good to hear about um, developments that are happening in the home country. Mm-hmm. And also, I hope that everyone has had a really good uh, last week because... Last week it was uh, Australia. Um, this last week it was Australia Day, and I think that also India had its National Day as well. Yeah, Republic Day. Uh, uh, that, that's the day when the Indian Constitution came into being. So all the India got independence in '47. Took them two, three years to make the Constitution, which is very expansive. And uh, so that's why it's celebrated as a Republic Day. Yeah. So it was, it's quite a coincidence, but probably it's a good day. <laughs> well, we've got uh, quite a few interesting uh, topics of science to. Uh, discuss today yeah we do yeah so just uh, starting off uh, obviously with all uh, the flooding that's happening in the uh, murray darling basin at the motion uh, at, at the moment i'm definitely keeping an eye on that uh, and also my hometown of townsville looks like it's having, having a couple of cyclones coming its way so we're all hoping that um everyone's okay out there mm-hmm. uh, yeah i mean the flooding has been like uh, really sad uh, and it's just uh, people have been calling me from all over the world like people I know and you know because uh, it's it's just very surprising in the sense that this kind of flooding and the scale of flooding is just very very uh, surprising absolutely and what really has uh, well, astonished me over the years is that the climactic variability in Australia is just so extreme I mean for years and years there'll be drought and not a mm-hmm. drop of rain at times mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden uh, all the creeks the rivers are full and then there's floods this veritable inland sea just moving down at the moment mm-hmm. But uh, just on that, a, a scientist says it will take more than the Murray flood flows to restore the, the Coorong uh, wetlands in South Australia back to full health. Mm-hmm. An Adelaide University scientist says floodwaters from eastern Australia will do little to restore the Coorong wetlands near the Murray mouth in the short term, because and that's despite South Australia receiving its healthiest river flows in more than a decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess uh, a lot of times uh, it, it's not so much whether the quantity, you know, like if, if there's a lot of rain in a very short period of time, because I think for the earth to get rejuvenated, I think the water has to seep down. And for that, you know, I mean, the more far away we move from nature and natural processes, uh, you know, it, it probably becomes that much more difficult. So if you, you know, if one wants the water table to rise or if one wants that, uh, you know, there should be wetlands or the earth should become moist, uh, I guess it probably will take longer than, you know, a huge um, rainfall, you know, in, in short periods. Rather, probably uniform rainfall over a period of time would probably be better. I, I'm making a guess, but, yeah. Yes, but I'm not sure if you were in areas of India where they actually had uh, the monsoon um uh, growing in the tropics, I mean, that was something that was instilled into us from a very early age. I mean, mm-hmm. when the monsoon season comes, you've mm-hmm. got all these cyclones, mm-hmm. and, the, and it can rain for like days and days on end. But mm-hmm. other times of the year, it's pe- nearly perfectly clear skies. <laughs> yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, even in India, you have these seasons. So, like, monsoon, in fact, is a very major part of uh, uh, Indian life because agriculture depends on monsoon. And then, uh, you know, if you don't have good monsoon, then it affects 
agriculture and consequently industry and stuff like that and when you have a good monsoon then you know everything falls into place so yeah i guess rains are very very important but i guess freak weather is being observed in a lot of places i mean now it's like every year there's more freaky weather you know so one doesn't know whether it's part of natural processes or whether it's because of global warming but uh, certainly like temperatures have been dropping i mean it's extreme cold and then extreme heat like uh, the place where i come from where i grew up i mean temperature would fall probably to 7-8 degrees uh, you know not more than that and this year it fell to 2 degrees I mean which which is absolutely unprecedented so probably we'll know in the next couple of years whether it's you know actually because of global warming or you know is it uh, because it's, it's something like this just keeps happening it's a cycle but you know the, the, it, the indications that this is serious and probably we have something to do with it as human beings you know uh, well would it, um some of the other scientific stories are heading, um, well, during the week. Um, this is something that I've got, but it's something of an interest um, because mm-hmm. years ago when uh, Australia was uh, changing its uh, weights and measure system from the imperial standard to well, the metric system, mm-hmm. I mean, many people grew up with uh, pounds and stone and, mm-hmm. and then changing over to grams, kilograms mm-hmm. as part of the metric system. Well, Scientists say they are moving closer to becoming up with a non-physical definition of the kilogram after discovering the metal artifact used as the international standard has shed a little weight. <laughs> and I was just reading about this, um, and researchers caution that there is still some way to go before the mission is complete, but mm-hmm. if success will lead to the end of the useful life of the last manufactured object on which the fundamental units of measure depend. Um, mm-hmm. The current international standard for the kilo, this equivalent of 2.2 pounds, mm-hmm. is a chunk of metal under triple lock and key in France since 1889. Mm-hmm. And scientists have, cons- have become concerned about the cylinder of platinum and iridium housed mm-hmm. at the International Bureau of Weights and Measures, the mm-hmm. BIPM in Sevilla, mm-hmm. uh, near Paris, after discuss after discovering it mysteriously lost a tiny amount of weight. Mm-hmm. Apparently it's lost about 50 micrograms. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, um, that's equivalent to about like a small grain of sand. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was thinking that, uh, I mean, I'm not sure if there's some type of radioactive decay. I mean, mm-hmm. like if these elements have got a, a half-life where they're yeah. you know, losing yeah. a mm-hmm. few atoms here and there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the scientists are searching for a, new, a, a non-physical way of defining the kilo, which mm-hmm. would bring it in line with the six other base units that make up the initial system of units, yeah. the SI. Uh, yeah, the, the thing is that it, it, the thing with all these measurement stuff is that even if it might seem insignificant, uh, you know, but even like that little weight, or you know, like when we're talking about matter, or when you're talking about time scales of time and stuff, I mean, even that can make a huge difference on larger scales. So I guess now the scientists must be like really interested in knowing how uh, it lost, you know, even if it's like milli- point milli milligrams or whatever, you know, like however, however let- less it is, they must be really interested in what actually happened. You know, so. And particularly if uh, that, uh, well, international standard is used in some really, really complex uh, computations, mm-hmm. even just that tiniest fraction of an error can... Mm-hmm. 
will lead to the various permutations and like, mm. oh, something's gone wrong here. Yeah, yeah. Like even time. I mean, uh, you know, I, I once tried to read like how they define time or how they define one minute or one second. It was so complicated. It just went over my head. I mean, it's it's one thing that I just could not grasp, you know, because it's, it's you know, the, the explanation is not, doesn't seem very simple, at least prima facie. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's, it's like really they have very, very strict measurements for measuring these uh, kind of quantities. So it's very interesting. And, so, and the other units to measure are the meter, the second, the ampere, the kelvin, the mole, and the candela. Mm-hmm. And now them are now based on a physical reference object. And experiments are focused on establishing a link between mass and the Planck constant, uh, mm-hmm. which is the fundamental unit of measurement in quantum physics, mm-hmm. uh, to provide a new definition of the kilo. Mm-hmm. And Michael Stott, a BIPM scientist, mm-hmm. uh, over this coming week will discuss the proposed change in London, saying the metal chunk, known as the international prototype, mm-hmm. was coming to the end of its useful life. Mm-hmm. And uh, measurements get more and more precise, and precise <laughs> measurements require well-defined measurement units to express the results. And though he added that, our experiments are moving forward, however, it's too early to implement a new definition of the kilogram just yet. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, pretty interesting, you know, all, all the stuff. I mean, uh, I mean, one really, like, people who are working in that field, they know how precise it is. But I guess, uh, you know, we just take it for granted. Okay, there's a machine and, you know, it will give us this uh, weight or the, it will give us this time. But, yeah, it's, there's a lot of science behind it as to how they have come about it. And um, actually, there are two very interesting stories that uh, I read on the BBC website. I mean, I'm sure they're on many other websites. One is um, uh, the Hubble telescope apparently has uh, detected what scientists believe may be the oldest galaxy ever observed. And uh, this galaxy is uh, apparently older than 13 billion years uh, ago. And uh, that means that it formed within like 500 years, 480 million years after the Big Bang. And... uh, what was interesting is that they noted that there was rapid growth over a short period of time, relatively speaking. And uh, so around 500 million years after the Big Bang, they can see just about uh, one galaxy is visible current, currently. And uh, But 150 million later, um, you know, the number rises to 10. And then another 100 million years later, the tally has almost doubled. So... Uh, you can see that there's, uh, you know, expansion in the sense that, uh, but but it is absolutely fascinating that now with telescopes and, you know, science, we can see so far back into time and, uh, you know, and at least make some kind of, you know, theory as to what actually happened. Uh, but it's just, I mean, to uh, look, to be able to look back into time. And um, that reminds me like, you know, I've always wondered that when you're actually looking at the night sky, you're looking at the past because the light that it's, it's basically light and the light you're receiving is actually, you know, the past, you know, so it's, it's a fascinating thing. And, um, there's another story which uh, caught my attention. That is, um, I mean, the headline that BBC gave was life chemicals may have formed around far flung stars and, uh, far flung star. And this is, you know, it's, it's, very strange, uh, like how they've come to this conclusion. And uh, uh, basically, amino acids, they are like the building blocks of life. And they can be formed in two versions. So it's a left-handed version and life, li- right-handed version. And uh, apparently, 
on earth there's an abundance of the left-handed version uh, while in 1942 they had done an experiment uh, uh, you know to, to make these amino acids and uh, you know so there was spark across a super simple chemical and what they found it that, the, that there were equal number of left and right so that that means technically on earth there should have been equal number of left and right-handed amino acids but that's not the case and then they studied meteorites and uh, you know it, it showed that meteorites have you know an abundance of left-handed amino acids and probably you know that's how they came to the earth but but then they try to find out that why there's this discrepancy between left and right-handed amino acids and they found that it has something to do with polarization of light uh, and apparently the light in the regions around a forming star uh, you know becomes circularly polarized and uh, apparently that could cause uh, maybe a slightly more number so what they found is that there could be formation of both left and right handed amino acids but uh, there were slightly over a percent more of the left handed version so that technically means that you know the amino acids that came to earth came from like you know some far flung star where you know there was a circular polarization of light and it's just incredible because you know it could open a wide range of possibilities i mean if uh, if amino acids are that common in the cosmos then um, uh, you know you could probably have life uh, you know in many places and life may be you know may may not be rare at all it's just a question of distances so yeah but again it's a theory but it's an interesting theory and there's still a lot of uh, discussion particularly with organizations like uh, SETI the search for extraterrestrial intelligence yeah, yeah. well that just actually what constitutes life i mean like um well stromatolites say in uh western australia in some of the tidal pools mm-hmm. i mean mm-hmm. theoretically could be uh considered some type of organic life mm-hmm. but whether or not such t- uh, types of life forms can be recognized as existing on other planets mm-hmm. that have extremes of heat cold mm-hmm. radiation mm-hmm. or other climatic uh, mm-hmm. extremes it's still yeah. uh lots and lots of uh, debate now, Pavi, you've uh, got a um, a, rec- a recorded interview for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, the interview was uh, with uh, uh, Professor Ken Freeman, who's uh, a professor of astronomy at the Research School of Ast- Astronomy and Astrophysics. And I actually went to Mount Stromlo to do the interview, and it's a fantastic view, and uh, it's it's very uh, you know surreal when you go there. You know, it's it's just uh, amazing to uh, know that all this is happening, and uh, it was very interesting to talk to him. And he's an expert on dark matter and galaxy clusters and galaxies and stuff like that. So uh, that's how we started the interview. We spoke about dark matter. So I hope uh, everybody else enjoys the interview as much as I did. Now you, you've probably all heard about um, dark matter. It's um, when we when we look at the universe and try and measure what different kinds of mass we have. We have you know, we have stars and we have gas, and then that's that's the stuff that we can see. We can see stars with optical telescopes. We can see gas with uh, radio telescopes. But when we actually look at individual galaxies like the one that we live in, we find that. Um, only about 5% of the mass of these galaxies is actually made up of stuff that we can see, like stars and gas. The other 95%, we can tell that it's there from the gravitational fields because we can measure gravitational fields. But we don't know what this stuff is. Now, it's been a, it was discovered first in, in the 1930s, and it was just too different a concept in the 1930s to really make an impact on, 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 on the subject. 
So it was it was sort of it wasn't it wasn't forgotten, but it was just one of those things that just came it came too early for, for science and people just didn't know what to do with it, so they didn't do anything with it. And it was sort of accidentally rediscovered in nineteen fifty nine, but again it was still too early. And the, the evidence was really good. But it was just such an alien concept that uh, it just, you know, you, you would think something like this would make an enormous impact, but in fact it didn't. And then in the early 1970s, it was rediscovered again for the, for the, for the third time. And, and at that point, it was almost ready. It wasn't quite ready. I, I was involved with that whole, whole process, so starting around, around 1970. And during the 70s, there was a long, long argument about whether there is really a problem. I mean, is there stuff out there that's gravitating that we can't see, or is there not? And gradually the evidence accumulated. And by about 1978, I think most people who were seriously involved were pretty convinced. And then we had a big conference on the subject in 1985, so, I mean, obviously by then it was really a, a, a subject that had come in. But although this stuff has been around since the 1930s, we still don't know what it is. It's, it's a very important part of the, of, um, of the universe, N not only because there's so much of it, and um, you know, it's obviously a, a, a big part of, 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 uh, of, of galaxies, but um, it's really changed our whole picture of how galaxies came together. Now, you can imagine if there's going to be a huge difference between a situation where you've only got ordinary matter, you know, hydrogen and the stuff that then becomes stars and gas, and on the other hand, where you have another 20 times more matter, the, the, the big difference is that everything happens much more quickly when there's a lot of, uh, lot of matter around. We, we had a problem before dark matter really became part of the, uh, of the scene of trying to understand why galaxies had formed as quickly as they, as they did. And once dark matter was discovered, that really helped enormously because then the times for galaxies to actually come together were much, much quicker. And now, of course, we can see very, very far back into the, into the universe. We can see to within a giga year or even less of the Big Bang. And we are now seeing that the galaxies have, have actually already started to form at that very, 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 very early time. So that would be impossible if all we had was ordinary matter. But because now we've got the, the dark matter, that, that really makes it possible. But it's uh, in, in, in some ways an embarrassment, in some ways a challenge that Astronomers, even at this stage, don't know what 95% of the mass of the universe is. So one, one of the real challenges for us is in the next few years is to, to try and work out what this stuff is. Now, we have, during the 1990s, uh, mounted a big experiment here called the Macho Experiment. And what we were looking for in that experiment was dark matter objects that were compact things like perhaps dead stars or stars that had tried to form and had failed. They, they in, in, in the 90s, they were really the favourite candidates. Rather, one could say matter, ordinary matter, which could not be detected because it did not emit enough uh, exactly. EM radiation. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly right. So, for example, um, ordinary stars at the end of their life cycle, depending on how big they are, they finish up as neutron stars, which are just really just very densely packed neutrons, or they finish up as white dwarfs. And in each case, they're well, in the case of the neutron stars, they, they are not luminous. In the case of the white dwarfs, they, they are luminous, but very, very faint and effect, effectively undetectable. So that, and, and then there are another kind of star called brown dwarfs, which are small stars around perhaps a tenth of a solar mass or five hundredth of a solar mass. They're stars which tried to form, 
but because of their very low mass, effectively failed. They weren't able to ignite. And they, they were a very hot candidate. Nobody really knew how many of these brown dwarfs were around. When we talk about uh, dark matter or entities that uh, do not emit light or which cannot be detected, are we talking only of visible light uh, when we talk in uh, astronomy? No. Or is it the entire EM radiation? So when we no. say that a certain object is not being uh, able to radiate, it's, it's, or we are not being able to detect it, it yeah. means the whole range of... Effect, effectively the whole range. I mean, at, at this point, almost the whole electromagnetic range is accessible to us. Now, that wasn't true perhaps a decade ago, mm -hmm. but now we, we've got various kinds of devices, but a lot of them in space, mm -hmm. which can really detect everything from um, for very hard radiation like, uh, like gamma rays right up to very, very long wavelength uh, radio radiation. So it's pretty much, pretty much everything, although... Um, Certain parts of the spectrum we're, we're much better at than others. And, and mostly for things like stars, we're talking about ultraviolet, optical and infrared. We're not going out to the radio. And mostly we're not going to the far ultraviolet to the really hard stuff. Yeah. And in spite yeah. of all this, there's no uh, idea about dark matter really? Like there's no signal? No, well, 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 not yet. So, so with this, um, this experiment, this, this, this macho experiment, we were trying to detect... Um, some of these dead objects um, and, and, and the way we tried to do that was that if one of these objects in our galaxy passed in front of say the Large Magellanic Cloud which is a galaxy um, it's really the nearest of the substantial galaxies to us and we can see individual stars it's quite close enough for us to see individual stars and if one of these dark objects in our galaxy just happened to pass in front of a star in, say, the Large Magellanic Cloud, it would cause that star to brighten temporarily on the time scale of a few days to maybe a few weeks. And that's just a gravitational effect. It's called um, gravitational lensing. And the, gra the gravity of the dark object in our galaxy focuses the, the light from the more distant object and just it, it appears to amplify the brightness of the star for a short period. And then once the foreground star has moved away, this effect... Uh, disappears. Now we did find a few of these things, but we didn't find enough of them. Not not nearly enough to explain the dark matter. So it, it was very exciting when we found the first one. Of course, we thought we'd discovered dark matter and we'd all get Nobel prizes, but <laughs> that that wasn't the way it, it, it worked out. But but the, the the important thing that came out of this experiment is that we know one thing or one class of things that dark matter is not, and the, and we can say quite categorically that it is not in the form of neutron stars white dwarfs, brown dwarfs, even things down to um, one ten millionth of the mass of the sun, tiny objects which are getting down into planetary, um, you know, planetary and subplanetary masses. So we've ruled out a whole class of possible objects. Now this was, uh, this was quite an interesting phase because at the same time that this was going on, there was a lot of work going on in physics laboratories trying to detect dark matter particles which were of a quite different nature. There were some sort of subatomic particles, mostly things called weakly interacting massive particles. Now these are just, they're, they're literally subatomic um, particles. They're the sort of thing that, that says, okay, well imagine Newton's laws work fine at the sort of accelerations that we see in the, in the solar system. Mm -hmm. But now we're going down into these uncharted tiny accelerations mm -hmm. that we see in galaxies. Mm -hmm. 
you think a galaxy is a huge thing, enormous mass, big velocity, so that's all true. Mm-hmm. But it's that radius, that 1 over r, that v squared over r, that's the bit that kills you. Because mm-hmm. the radius in the galaxy is so much bigger mm-hmm. than the radius in, in the solar system. Mm-hmm. So um, the possibility is there that something is not quite right with Newton's laws mm-hmm. at those very tiny accelerations. So there's been this parallel line of thought mm-hmm. that maybe something wrong with Newton's laws and there's a whole structure of gravitational theories that mm-hmm. have played on this. Now, f- people have not, perhaps not taken those quite as seriously mm-hmm. as, they, as they might have. And I think, I would say, at, at, at this point, my own guess is that it, it's unlikely that that's correct. And that, that gets probably too technical to, 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 to talk about here. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something we do have to keep in mind. That I mean, what happens in five years' time if we haven't found what the dark matter particles are, or we've shown that there's no gamma rays, we have nothing's turned up in the physics laboratory, well then I think people will have to start thinking more seriously about alternative theories of gravity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I should say already a lot of people are thinking very seriously about this, mm-hmm. but I think most mainstream astronomers, like myself, aren't taking these. We're aware of them. It would be a bit, uh, yeah. you know, it would, it would be a, it would be very surprising or rather shocking, you know, to know that Newton's laws don't work across <laughs> the universe. Because yeah. I mean, what it would technically mean is that uh, the, you know, the inverse law, like uh, one upon r square, uh, doesn't, you know, that maybe it, it's not uniform across the universe. That maybe the larger the distance, it's not necessary that uh, it will become weaker by, you know, one upon r square. So That's right. It's, it's actually possible. Yeah. I mean. The, the simplest of these theories that really came up, in, it, was, it was proposed in 1984, quite shortly after people had really accepted that it was a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the most um, sort of simple of these just says, okay, well, there's a gradual transition from a, a, a 1 over r squared law at solar system type accelerations to a 1 over r law when you get to these extreme accelerations. If you have a 1 over R law instead of 1 over R squared law, mm-hmm. a lot of the dark matter evidence disappears. So, I mean, that, that would make a, an enormous difference. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can imagine, people have been trying to find evidence that this 1 over R law isn't true. Mm-hmm. So far, there's not much convincing evidence. It, this 1 over R law at galactic type accelerations mm-hmm. um, seems to survive most of the tests. Now, there's, there's a test involving clusters of galaxies that it doesn't survive. Mm-hmm. And that brings us into another sort of area to do with the neutrinos. Mm-hmm. We're, so far, we've just been talking about individual galaxies. Mm-hmm. And certainly on those scales, the evidence for dark matter is you know, really, really, really strong. Mm-hmm. The original mm-hmm. evidence for dark matter back in the 1930s, when Fritz Zwicky studied a cluster of galaxies, mm-hmm. looked at how the galaxies in the cluster were moving and he showed that they were moving too fast for to be contained by the gravity just of the stars mm-hmm. and galaxies alone. He figured out that there had to be, on the scale of clusters of galaxies, quite a lot of the dark matter. Now, a, a cluster of galaxies is a, a group of a, perhaps a, a thousand galaxies typically in a, in a, in a big cluster okay. they're, and they're all buzzing around in each other's gravitational field, mm-hmm. plus the gravitational field of anything else that's there. Mm-hmm. Now, at the time that Zwicky was doing his work, um, all we knew about clusters was that 
there's, you know, there's individual galaxies and they seem to be stars. Um, in the, I guess, 60s and 70s, it became pretty clear that clusters of galaxies were giving off a lot of X-rays. Mm-hmm. Now, X-ray emission is the, it's detected from satellites and balloons, mm-hmm. and it comes from very hot gas. And people quite soon figured out that in a cluster of galaxies, as well as the galaxies themselves, you have a lot of just ordinary gas that's in a very hot form. It's around a million Kelvin. And when you have gas at a million Kelvin, it gives off X-rays. Mm-hmm. And those X-rays you can detect. In fact, when you look at the cluster of galaxies, there's much more mass in this hot gas mm-hmm. than there is in the, the stars. In, in the stars of the galaxies themselves. Now, that's not something you see in most ordinary, ordinary galaxies. They don't have this hot gas. But when you get a whole bunch of galaxies together, mm-hmm. you do get this hot gas. So already by the 70s, we, we knew that when you look at the cluster of galaxies, it's not just the galaxies, it's this hot gas. But now that's all ordinary matter. Mm-hmm. But then it became pretty clear that even with that hot gas, there was nowhere near enough mass mm-hmm. to hold this whole thing together. Mm-hmm. So you needed a lot of dark matter as well. Another thing that has always intrigued me is that that at uh, talking about uh, galaxies and galaxy clusters, that you know, from one point uh, the universe is accelerating; it's mm-hmm. in its expansion mm-hmm. as well. So everything is moving faster, mm-hmm. you know, at a at a very yes. fast rate. And yet you have these clusters where galaxies are bunched together, and obviously that means that gravity there is very strong, yes, exactly. and that's why they're clumping together. So right. how does that happen? How yeah. does that happen? Um, well, see, even uh, when, you, when you're thinking about just a, an individual galaxy, or say a pair of galaxies, now, f- I mean, for example, our Milky Way is part of a, not a cluster, it's part of a small group of galaxies. And there's one other big, our, our galaxy is the big one. There's another equally big one, which is called the Andromeda Galaxy. We can't mm-hmm. see this easily from the south. Now, those two galaxies are approaching each other now at 118 kilometres a second. So you might say, well, the universe is expanding. Why are these two galaxies approaching? Mm-hmm. And the answer is that just locally, there was enough mass to locally turn around the expansion of the universe. So these two galaxies probably were born very close together. They expanded with the universe, but the gravity was enough over a certain amount of time, do reverse that expansion and so that now these two things are forming uh, together again. And the universe is 13.7 billion years old. And that actually, the fact that our galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy are approaching, mm-hmm. that actually gives us another way of mm-hmm. measuring how, ma- how much mass there is in those two galaxies. Because mm-hmm. there has to be enough mass in those two galaxies to have turned around the expansion and so that they're now approaching at 118 kilometres mm-hmm. a second. And that has had to have happened in 13.7 giga years. And that mass that we get is entirely consistent with all the other things I've been, I've been telling you about. So that, that's another strong piece of evidence. Now, now, when we go to the scale of clusters, it's a very similar thing. Okay. That just locally, there's enough mass... Mass and matter to... To, to have turned, turned the, the, the whole expansion around so that all these galaxies then fell together and they've probably been... The, the, the orbits of the galaxies in the cluster would have taken the, each galaxy through the cluster several times, backwards and forwards. So this whole thing is quite nicely mixed up. And that's really part of the reason why you get all this hot gas, because of all this, these you know, galaxies passing through the cluster so many times and, um, and mixing. But um, just, just going back to what we were talking about the, mm-hmm. with the alternative theories of gravity, an alternative theory of gravity that works for an individual galaxy that says, okay, we can 
we can get away with a 1 over R gravity law and we don't need dark matter. Now that same theory doesn't work when we go to these much bigger objects. So if this same alternative theory of gravity is to hold in an individual galaxy and in a cluster, then in the cluster we, have to, we do actually have to find another form of dark matter. Now, it turns out that when you were talking about scales on the size of clusters of galaxies, it does admit a whole different class of dark matter um, particles because the mass of it and the size of a cluster of galaxies are so big that you can, in fact, tolerate some dark matter particles that are moving very fast. They're called warm dark matter or hot dark matter. On the scale of galaxies, those things are ruled out just by the fact that the galaxies are so small on this kind of scale that you can never capture hot dark matter particles. So the dark matter, the kind of dark matter that you need on galaxy scales has to be what we call cold. And cold just means it's not moving very fast, uh, say relative to the speed of light. So in a, in a cluster of galaxies, we can tolerate different kinds of dark matter, including things that are quite warm. And that admits then neutrinos. Now, neutrinos are things that are moving quite fast when they come out of the early universe because they're, they're, you know, they're, 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 they're very light um, particles. And so the, uh, the people who are wanting to save alternative theories of gravity would argue that, okay, in a galaxy, the alternative theory of gravity does everything you need. In a cluster of galaxies, you have to invoke some other kind of dark matter, but you have much more freedom in the kind of dark matter that you admit. And neutrinos are quite a favourite class. So these are neutrinos, not neutralinos. Neutrinos is ordinary matter. You you get that in uh, radioactive decay as well. That's right. Neutrinos are things that we know about. Now, the thing we don't know yet about neutrinos is what the mass is. Is there? We, we know there are going to be a lot of neutrinos in the universe that just naturally fell out of the Big Bang. Yeah, but, but do they have enough mass? Yeah. That, that's the issue. Yeah, because I, I think when we we were studying uh, about neutrinos, it was uh, kind of you know assumed that they are like close to zero mass. So you know, uh, right. probably not zero, but just so you would need like you know like trillions of neutrinos exactly. in the universe to fill yeah, that absolutely mass. Absolutely trillions of these things. Um, so then the question is, do do the neutrinos have enough mass? Now enough in this context. Um, now, means mass is greater than about two electron volts. Now, electron volt is an energy measure, and with particles, one mostly gives their masses in terms of energy because there's this equivalence, you know, the E equals mc squared, mm-hmm. equivalence of mass and energy, mm-hmm. and it's just customary for particles to talk about energies rather, rather than masses. Mm-hmm. So, the, the, these are, I mean, two electron volts is a, is a tiny, tiny mass, mm-hmm. even on the scales of particles that we know about. Mm-hmm. But the critical thing now for accepting neutrinos as a possible dark matter source mm-hmm. is whether there's enough, whether they have enough mass. Mm-hmm. And enough, enough here, as I say, means about two electron volts. Mm-hmm. There are experiments going on around the world to measure these things. I, I, I was sort of expecting that by, the, by 2011 we would know what the answers are, but they haven't as yet emerged. But this is going to be a very exi- exciting thing. If the neutrino mass turns out to be less than two electron volts, mm-hmm. again, this will be quite a blow for this particular favourite alternative mm-hmm. gravity theory. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we'll, we'll see. But that, I mean, hopefully in the next five years or so, that also will be mm-hmm. established. Now, if it turns out that the neutrino mass is much too low, mm-hmm. 
and we don't see gamma rays from dwarf spheroidal galaxies and nobody finds particles in the laboratory, then there's going to be some very serious rethinking needed. And so it's going to be an interesting time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, it seems like that because, uh, I mean, of course, it, you know, one can run, uh, may let one's imagination run wild, but, you know, dark matter could actually be like large lumps of matter uh, which, you know, are probably transparent and, uh, you know, they're actually large, but we don't know how to detect them. I mean, there's... Uh, well, we, we, we do think that we can see the dark well, we can detect the dark matter on galactic scales, mm-hmm. as I say, just from the rotation. From inference, like yeah, from the... Ju- 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 just from yeah. the rotation. I mean, so, so that's, that's a sort of a, a strong piece of evidence, yeah. whatever, whichever way one goes at that yeah. point. But direct evidence of, you know, what it could be, is, it's just so fascinating to, yeah, you know... Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, an exciting time. Yeah, but yeah. but is there a possibility that dark matter will, uh, although it's too early probably, but will compel us to rewrite our laws of physics? I mean, is it is it uh, possible at all? Because uh, I mean, again, the whole inference is based on how gravity functions, and if gravity is not uniform, or as you were suggesting that you know there are alternative theories going around, uh, it would be you know it would change the way we view everything because if gravity is not uniform, then what is to say that other forces in nature are uniform or if they are just four forces and not anymore? It's, it's very difficult to, to, to guess what's going to happen in, in the say, I, 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 I think five years is, is, is a pretty realistic timescale for things to either be found or to be shown not, not to be there. And if, if, I, if I'm right on that and none of these things turn up, then I think there's some pretty serious rethinking will have to be done. I mean, we're talking about 95% of the mass of the, you know, the, the real mass. I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm not talking about dark energy here, but mm-hmm. it, it's, it's like, like 95% on, on galactic scales. Mm-hmm. Now, that 95% on galactic scales is a, is a local thing. Mm-hmm. In the universe as a whole, about 15% of the, of the mass is in the form of ordinary matter. And so the remaining 85% is dark. Now, galaxies don't seem to have their fair share of ordinary matter. When we go to the clusters, remember I was saying that in the clusters there's a lot of hot gas. That hot gas makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. So in a a cluster of galaxies, appears to have its fair share Mm -hmm. of ordinary matter from the universe. Mm -hmm. We've got some some quite good numbers from uh, some, some, some very nice measurements made on the on the glow that comes to us from the early universe. That gives mm-hmm. you a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And we know from that glow, the properties of that glow, how much, what the ratio of ordinary matter to dark matter has to be. And that's, that's this, this, this number of about 15%. Mm-hmm. When you look at the cluster of galaxies, you actually find 15% of ordinary matter. So the cluster of galaxies seems to have contained its ordinary matter. When you go to galaxies, even big ones like our own one, mm-hmm. that number drops from 15% to something of the order of 5%. And what people believe has happened mm-hmm. is that when all the stars in our galaxy were forming, mm-hmm. a lot of the gas was just blown out into the what we call the intergalactic medium, just the space between the galaxies, mm-hmm. and never fell back in again. So that space, we know there's a lot of gas also out there. Mm-hmm. So and that probably could be because... The gravity will not enough to hold the... Exactly, exactly. So just the explosions that occur when stars form was enough to throw out a lot of gas. So when we go to these tiny galaxies, these dwarf spheroidal galaxies that are almost pure dark matter, although they're so dense, their gravitational fields, in fact, aren't very strong. 
-hmm. And those things probably throw out almost all of their mass. I mean, it, it, it's possible that there are galaxies out there which are really just dark matter only and have really got almost no ordinary matter left at all. I mean, they're going to be very tough to detect. Detect, yeah. 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 Uh, Professor Freeman, thank you so much for uh, uh, giving this interview and uh, being with us today. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Hey, you're most welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And also, uh, Pallavi, our heartfelt thanks uh, for conducting the, the interview as well. Uh, it was it was really uh, great because he's a very uh, well-known uh, astronomer and he's done some uh, phenomenal work on dark matter and uh, globular clusters. And um, uh, let's hope that, uh, you know, the scientists are able to find what dark matter actually is. God alone knows when that will happen, but let's hope soon enough. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So it was good, yeah. Well, that brings us uh, to the end of another Faisalji uh, Shah, um, thanks everyone for listening in today. And also, uh, very, very special thanks to Pallavi for dropping in today. That, that's all right. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I tell people that it, you learn so much when you meet, uh, you know, brilliant scientists. I mean, it, it's uh, really a huge privilege and an opportunity because you, you really get to know so much when you talk to people who are so enlightened in their respective fields. And it seems to be the case that uh, even these uh, brilliant people are still people at the end of it. I mean, yeah, they, they are. And, and I guess what matters at the end of the day is that how good you are as a human being. I mean, all said and done. Thanks, Flavi. Well, I uh, hope you can join us again uh, for your Science of Sunday next Sunday. From all of us here at uh, First Logic, have a great week, and we'll catch you then.